The following live recording of Swami Vivekananda Saraswati is presented by agamayoga.com. Namaste, good evening to all of you. Tonight in our weekly discourse, I'm going to start from a very small chapter, paragraph more like, from... Um, a book which is famous in the circles where one speaks about conspiracy of different kinds. It's a book of William Bramley called The Gods of Eden. William Bramley is uh, making an analysis of the decadence of the decay of the human society, starting from the Mesopotamian Babylonian cultures, that's why it's called the gods of Eden, and uh, to up till the 20th century. Uh, he is bringing up a lot of hypotheses, which I don't necessarily support. The fact that I quote one chapter from his book, which happens to point to a very interesting aspect in spiritual life, does not mean that I automatically subscribe to all his other ideas. Although the book uh, is interesting in many respects. There is another chapter in his book that I would like to use at some time, at some point, as a start for a whole line of ideas. That chapter is very, very, it's a very, very small tip of an iceberg to a much, much bigger story. But that is not related directly to the spiritual life. It's related more to, indeed, to the conspiracy theories. It's one of the root things. And although the conspiracy theories have something in common with spiritual life, because they refer exactly to the opposite forces, to the forces that are destroying spiritual life, uh, nevertheless, that connection is more indirect. But the chapter which I'm going to read for you and which will serve me to make further commentaries, I will use this six page, six very small pages chapter as a starter for some ideas, um, is called, is the chapter number 22 from his book and it's called Marching Saints and uh, it refers to the changes in the Western religion. Often in uh, some of the question and answer sessions uh, here in Agama, question and answer sessions which are generally reserved to the pupils from the second level and up, they have come periodically. We get questions in which we have to analyze the Western religious establishment, the relationship between yoga and uh, the Western religion, in principle the Christian religion, and its various denominations. And um, we get to discuss about transmission of power, about ritual, about initiation, about uh, apostolic continuity, and other such concepts, which are of great, great metaphysical import, much more than people usually think. And uh, in uh, respect to that, the chapter which I would like to start from today, I think, uh, bears a great relevance in understanding some of the trends in Western spirituality and especially in Christianity. It's called Marching Saints, and first I will read it. 
I don't know if I'm going to make commentaries in between paragraphs. And anyway, when I will finish it, I'll make a sort of a final comment to it. He says, one of the most important leaders of the Reformation was John Calvin. Calvin was only 10 years old when Luther broke from the Catholic Church. But as an adult, Calvin became one of Protestantism's most zealous advocates. Calvin published his first religious tract in 1536 in Basel, Switzerland, a city by the Swiss-German border. Calvin spent his adult life writing and teaching his own unique interpretations of Protestant doctrine. The result was the creation of a Protestant denomination named after him, Calvinism, which was headquartered in Geneva. Calvin continued in the mystical vein of Martin Luther. As we recall, Luther, because he commented that in another chapter here, so it's much briefer uh, reference, so I'm not going there. As we recall, Luther said in that spiritual salvation was not something that a human being could achieve through his or her own labors. This is such a gross distortion of the discipline of the, or of the doctrine of grace. Like Buddha, that's exactly what Buddha says, that a human being can and should achieve salvation through his or her own efforts. And then some more mystical yogis, like it happened in Kashmiri Shaivism, just to bring one of the most eminent of them, in Kashmiri Shaivism, uh, they say, well, as many efforts as you do, you cannot cross from finite to infinite. And therefore, whenever you get enlightened, or whatever you want to call it, there still will be something called grace. And that grace is adding something which the human being can never have, can never contribute with. So don't think that you selfishly can get enlightened, because it takes the grace of God to get enlightened. It takes some factor which is non-measurable by human effort. But jumping from that, which is a valid argument in many ways, some people jumped in the opposite extreme and they said, well, since grace, like grace would be a stupid, absurd thing, it would not respond to some factual realities. And then they came up to the ridiculous thing that since it's about grace, and grace is so much greater than the human efforts, then basically grace holds 99% and the human being holds 1%, and therefore uh, it's all about grace. Grace is the predominant factor, predominant factor. And because of this, you cannot achieve enlightenment through your own labors, ignoring the fact that that grace responds to something. Man proposes, God disposes. But if man does not propose, then God does not dispose. It's as simple as that. So, it's a, this is a typical, it's a pessimistic, it's a very pessimistic view of life. It's a very masochistic view of life, which both Luther had and then Calvin took it to painful extremes. So, uh, spiritual salvation is not something which the human being could achieve through his or her own labors. Probably most of you who are Protestant, Calvinist, Anglican, Neo-Protestant, and so on, by family or something, you don't even realize these things, 
and you take them for granted or they are somewhere embedded in that theology somewhere. Instead, salvation required an act of belief. And this is what made uh, the British East India Company fill up China with opium and get them addicted just to get tea and silver and all that to do their dirty trade. There was the only way to get silver out of China was to sell them opium and addict them to opium and all that. And although they were doing pirate work, drug smuggling work, killing for that, and it was all for just getting, uh, you know, a big shop on Oxford Street in London and for getting to be part of the rich uh, families of England, uh, they despised all the heathens like we are Christian and we are going to be saved because in the moment when we get killed, we just say Jesus, Mary, and then we are going to paradise. Which is like, it doesn't matter. Buddha says, nobody will ask you when you'll die what you believed in, but you are going to be asked to give account of your deeds. And these guys came exactly to the opposite end of the scale, saying it doesn't matter what you do, it matters if you believe. Because anyhow, God has decided in advance who's going to be saved and who's not going to be saved. Which is a totally absurd view. And it is a change which exists until today. Like today, the old Christianity is very seldom manifest. Exception made of the Catholic Christianity, which is booed and generally uh, put down as much as possible in uh, things like the Da Vinci Code and the likes of it. Because uh, these other trends in Christianity, they developed a lot of power. You are going to see how economical power, military power, pragmatical power is associated very much with distorting the original theology. Because the original theology was preaching modesty, detachment, and other things which were not very practical. You couldn't make the, for example, the London city financial power with Catholic morality or with Orthodox morality or with uh, Coptic Egyptian morality. That didn't work because it was way too detached and modest in terms of uh, interest. The same idea that salvation required just an act of belief, like it doesn't matter what you did, the same idea was promulgated by Calvin, but with a harsher twist. According to Calvin's doctrine, not even an act of faith or belief would ensure a person's spiritual survival. Calvin proclaimed instead that a person's spiritual salvation or lack of it was already predetermined before birth by God. So those of you who are in anything which goes beyond Catholicism, uh, realize that you are in these ideas, either knowingly or unknowingly. Not only had God decided in advance who would achieve spiritual salvation and who would not, but there was absolutely nothing a person could do about God's decision. This unhappy doctrine is known as predestination. Calvin's predestination teachings offered people little comfort because they stressed that most human beings were spiritually condemned. Like there are 144,000 who are going to make it to the kingdom of God when the doomsday and all the others, billions over billions, they are going to gnash teeth. 
Calvin's predestination teachings offered people little comfort because they stressed that most human beings were spiritually condemned. Those humans favored by God before birth were known as the elect. The elect were few in number and could do nothing to share their good fortune with others. The elect had only one real duty on earth, proclaimed Calvin, and that was to suppress the sin of others as a service to God. Calvin, of course, was one of the elect. One might ask, why would God condemn nearly every soul before birth and then continue to punish them after birth? It seems rather cruel. According to Calvin, the human race was still being punished for the original sin of Adam and Eve. As we recall, the original sin was early man's attempt to gain knowledge of ethics and spiritual immortality. Calvin did not attempt to justify predestination despite its obvious unfairness. He preached instead that predestination was a mystery to which all people should be humbled. Many things of God were never meant to be understood by human beings, he said. Calvinism was more than a Sunday religion. It was a way of life. It demanded of its adherents a pragmatic and austere lifestyle in which a person's highest duty was to glorify God in his or her daily actions. Which sounds very good, but when you look at what was said before, you realize it's just a demonic twist. It's that glorification is uh, empty when it's based on something so twisted. People were taught that their positions in life, no matter what those positions happened to be, were their callings by God. A life should be lived as though it was a supreme being's will that a person were where he or she was. Calvinism was clearly a philosophy of feudalism for the modern age. On religious grounds, Calvin forbade drunkenness, gambling, dancing, and singing flippant tunes. Those were among the sins that the elect had been put on earth to stamp out. To no one's surprise, Calvinists quickly developed a reputation for being dour and colorless. They also grew violent. Calvin was not a man of tolerance, and he, he adopted some of the vicious practices of the East Roman emperors. For example, Calvin encouraged the death penalty for heresy against his new doctrines, and he demanded that witches be burned to death and at stake. Actually, the Catholic Church bore, burned Protestants, and the Protestants and the Calvinists burned witches. That's good to be put into perspective, because sometimes... The Catholics are accused that they burned witches. They burned Protestants because they thought that the Protestants were the devil. So uh, this thing with witchcraft is very much a Protestant Calvinist thing. Calvinism traveled from its stronghold in Switzerland to other countries. In the Netherlands, Calvinists had played a very large role in agitating and bringing about the 80 years war, which gave us the Bank of Amsterdam, and this is as a pillar of financial manipulation. The Bank of Amsterdam is an important landmark in creating the paper money and some of this uh, big manipulation, things which are done with money today. In Great Britain, Calvinism was the basis of the Puritan religion. Like their Calvinist brethren in Holland, 
some English Puritans decided to assert their gloomy beliefs and material self-interest through violent revolution. In the year 1642, a group of wealthy and proeminent British Puritans led a full-scale civil war against the English king, Charles I. In Puritan eyes, Charles had committed crimes against God by marrying a Catholic and by being tolerant of Catholicism. After winning the civil war and beheading Charles, the victorious Puritan armies <coughs> placed their own dictator in charge of Britain, Oliver Cromwell. Under Cromwell, the Puritans were able to assert their religious beliefs into the arena of foreign policy. English Puritans believed strongly in the concept of Armageddon, which means the final battle. <coughs> they believed that the great final battle had begun and would climax in the later 17th century and that the Puritan civil war against Charles I was a part of that battle. The Pope was labeled the Antichrist, that's still practiced today by many Protestants and <coughs> Calvinists, and Catholicism was considered Satan's tool. Cromwell tried to shape English foreign policy around these beliefs by working to solidify international Protestant unity and by waging war against Catholics in various parts of Europe. By the way, this moved to America. North America, especially New England, was where many, many of these Puritans landed. And uh, this ideal of a person who would be in charge that had to be a wasp, white, Anglo-Saxon Protestant, W-A-S-P, is coming exactly from this predominance, from this prevalence. Cromwell believed that the English Puritans were God's second chosen people, like first there were the Jews, but then now God came with the second chosen people. These were the Puritans, the Calvinists, and that his actions were all part of biblical prophecy. Calvinist cosmology did much to shape Puritan ideas about war. Engaging in war, <coughs> which doesn't fit at all with Christian Christ's mentality, was glorified. The Puritans believed that tension and struggle were permanent elements of the cosmic scheme because of the eternal struggle between God and Satan. Professor Michael Walzer, in his intriguing book, Revolution of the Saints, a study in the origins of radical politics, exp explains their belief this way, quote, As there is permanent opposition and conflict in the cosmos, so there is permanent warfare on earth. This tension was itself an aspect of salvation. A man at ease was a man lost. It is vital to, un unquote, it is vital to understand this Puritan idea because it exalts war as a necessary step to spiritual salvation. It was also one of the seeds which gave us the Marxist philosophy of dialectical materialism. This Puritan belief is one of the most pernicious ideas ever taught by the custodial religions. It caused Puritans to view peace as an affront to God, because peace meant that the struggle against Satan had ceased. The world's peace is the keenest, quote, the world's peace is the keenest war against God, unquote, wrote Thomas Taylor in 1630. The highest calling of a Puritan man 
was to march off to war for the glory of God. When there was, uh, when there were, heaven forbid, no wars in progress, men were encouraged to attend military drills for recreation. Quote, and in religious aspects, since every man will have recreations that, that be best which is freest from sin, that best which strengthen the man, then abandon your carding, dicing, chambering, wantonness, dalliance, scurrilous discoursing and vain raveling out of time to frequent these exercise military drills. Unquote. The Puritans' ennoblement of war coupled with their austere pragmatism, helped bring about major changes in the manner of fighting wars. Generations earlier, the Renaissance had had a very interesting effect on warfare in Europe. War had become a gentleman's activity, ornate and full of bluster. European rulers expended considerable sums of money to create aesthetic and colorful armies. Bright uniforms, flapping banners, and fancy armor, or the order of the day. Significantly, pageantry replaced combat on the battlefield. More often than not, the dazzling Renaissance armies engaged in endless maneuverings against one another with little actual contact. After a great deal of pomp and show, a military stalemate will often occur, followed by an elegant cavalry maneuver known as the carasol, caracol, carasol. Each side could then declare itself the winner with few or no casualties and march colorfully home to the adulation of its people. Young male soldiers survived to quicken their lovers' pulses with noble tales of gallantry and honor in the field. In today's jaded, ultra-pragmatic world, the above activities might seem rather silly, like something from the Wizard of Oz. They were, however, an exceptionally important phenomenon, because the Renaissance style of warfare revealed the true nature of the human spirit. The majority of people will gravitate away from war when given the chance. They will turn arenas of conflict into theaters of pageantry, they will choose life, color, and artistry over death, pallor, and decay. The Renaissance was a short period of history, revealing that when repression is eased, when intolerance and war-inducing philosophies diminish in importance, and when people are able to think and act more freely, human beings as a whole will naturally and automatically move away from war. This is very much substantiated in the First World War, in the trench war on, at the borderline of France between the Allies and the Germans, where on Christmas Day, both sides started Christmas singing Christmas carols. They have been shooting at each other for one year. And they started singing Christmas carols, and then they got out of the trenches. They started giving cigarettes to each other. They started making presents to each other. And they fraternized the whole Christmas day. And the next day, the British and Allied headquarters issued an order that whoever dares to do that again would be court-martialed. Like the soldiers who are in the trenches, they didn't want to shoot each other. They wanted to sing Christmas carols and go home. That's what they wanted to do. 
it was some people who had the death wish, not those who were in the trenches there. Puritan austerity and glorification of war helped make European wars bloodier. Puritan armies operated on the idea that wars were meant to be fought effectively, not colorfully. With that in mind, Puritans eliminated military glitter and developed efficient fighting units through rigorous drilling. This pragmatic way of fighting quickly spread when other nations discovered that a beautifully embroidered banner could not win against an effectively pointed cannon. While most military organizations today still engage in some pageantry, it is noticeably absent in the actual conduct of war. We observe instead austere fighting uniforms, curt efficiency, and military strategists who coldly calculate nuclear mega-death with percentage points and probability factors. They are all reflections of the pragmatism reintroduced into war by the purist Puritans and other Protestants. As we survey the war-mangled bodies of our fellow humans who have been killed more efficiently and more pragmatically, perhaps we realize that Renaissance pageantry was not so silly after all. Despite its early successes, the new Puritan government under Cromwell did not last very long. The, anyhow, it continues with some history which takes us to the next chapter of the book. As I said, it's a pretty brief chapter, which is uh, bringing us to the commentaries. I wanted to read this chapter to make you aware of the fact that every few hundred years, the humanity goes through a sort of a cultural revolution, and most of these ones, except as the author tends to believe that the Renaissance was a more human-oriented, like in the 15th, 14th, 15th century, uh, then later, at the years where he describes in the 17th century already, fifth, late 16th and then 17th century, we are having this concept of ultra pragmatism developing. It is very, very difficult for people to see this, and I often told uh, to people to look into this religious decadence, like much of what is today labeled as Christianity is actually pertaining to the 2,900 Christian denominations, which appeared like mushrooms after rain, after the first uh, reformation, after Martin Luther. Martin Luther himself, who has declared about himself some very, very diabolic things, I do not have prepared with me that quote. There exists a famous quote which Luther wrote about himself as a sort of repentance for his weird lifestyle. But St Luther did not realize that when he started the so-called Reformation, he opened the box of Pandora, because in the moment when he opened that box, then all sorts of ungrounded religious things, first more timidly, like the from, from the Protestantism of Luther, you got Henrik VIII to get a little bit bold and then create Anglicanism, because what the heck, if Luther did it in Germany, I can do it in England my way, then Calvin came with his own variation, and then after hundreds and hundreds of Christian denominations who became Protestant, Neo-Protestant, and all the other things, 
going to some of the Elvis Presley churches of today and other similar manifestations. And therefore, very few people realize, like in the last 200 years, these things became almost normal. But if you look at it through the perspective of the 14th, 15th, 16th century, you realize that these were very, very big changes. And actually what happened in those centuries was obviously a turning point in the evolution of spirituality in the West and in the evolution of history. Because it is exactly like you would say, well, there is no grass in the floor of this yoga hall, right? Nobody sees any blade of grass growing here. But if the floor of this yoga hall in 20 years from now or in 200 years from now will crack, you can be sure that in those cracks there will appear blades of grass and other weeds and other things. They are just waiting for a crack in the thing. It's exactly the same. In the moment when Christianity started cracking, the weeds started appearing as well. And therefore, this was the beginning of the end, so to speak. It was not just a simple act that a man... You can realize that if you look at the effects, any tree shall be known by its fruits, said Jesus. If a tree shall be known by its fruits, then what kind of tree is this tree of Martin Luther and Calvin and the likes of them, Henry VIII and so on, when this tree has brought so many weeds and it actually has brought the decline to such a level. Therefore, you have to understand very clearly that the people who did these things, they were obviously, and I don't have any Spanish Inquisition spirit, I hope most of you know that I'm not any practicing Christian, and definitely not a Catholic, so I'm not saying this in any defense of any Christian branch, but still there are the metaphysical issues which need to be considered very carefully. And you have to consider that the people who created these dissensions, they were ultimately motivated, telepathically inspired and manipulated by demonic entities, by diabolic entities, and they didn't do this as a result of their own energy and initiative. Like Martin Luther may have believed that it was his gut that generated all his reformation, rebellion. But it was not. He was pumped from behind. There was a lot of wind in his sails, which did not come from him. He was empowered by very demonic and dark forces which made him become disproportionately strong compared to the person that he was. When you get to read what sort of person he was, you get appalled that a man like that, it's really appalling, it's probably you don't know, but try to search, and if not, I'll bring it in one Q&A or in another uh, satsang. Uh, his own confession, not to ma- not to mention the declaration of his own servants and other people who knew it pri- knew him privately, like what sort the fact that such a person could be the the new Adam of a new religion is kind of appalling and preposterous and ridiculous, and uh, that's why um, people who understand metaphysics and who see phenomena in their globality they see that human beings are never really alone, 
especially when they touch such sensitive points in the development of religion and spirituality, which will affect hundreds of millions and perhaps billions of people in the subsequent history of mankind, because too much is at stake. There is so much at stake that somebody who had a bird eye on this said, there is a crack appearing, push into that crack, enlarge that crack break open that crack, put a lot of energy, and Luther or Calvin or whoever will do the work that we have been waiting for for so long time. This is a sort of a man of destiny. This is the man of the moment, and it's not about him. He is just a tool. He is just a little pawn in the hands of much bigger forces, which usually don't have enough energy to interfere all day long, but when there are great things at stake or a breach is offered, then those forces they'll go full on into action for not missing the opportunity. So this being said, uh, I just wanted to bring up this issue to make you understand that... Um, Many things have changed in the Western mentality and even the message of the Christ is distorted to a large extent. Today we, you know, we look a hundred years ago, we look two hundred years ago and, you know, we look at the time, as I said, of East India Company, the 19th century, or we look at the time of Napoleonic Wars, or we look at the time of the French Revolution, or we look at the time of the independence of America, all these things are way, way later than what we talk now. Like what I told you already, had a couple of centuries time to foster and to kind of prepare the ground for major changes. And that's why events which sound uh, politically reasonable, acceptable, well, inevitable, and so on, they are actually the consequence of major spiritual changes. There is a very, very strange thing in the human being that they very, they get very irritated by other people believing other things. In a way, it goes to the sources, you know, because even Buddha, when people had stupid beliefs about spirituality, he felt like stepping forward and telling them, this is not right. Your beliefs are erroneous. Even Krishna did the same. Jesus, when he thought that the Phariseans and the scribes of the Jewish temples of his day were wrong, he went apeshit onto them. He was fine with the tax collectors. He was fine with the hookers. But when it came to the zealots and the scribes and this, he was fire and brimstone on those ones. So he got much more irritated by people who thought who believed in some different thing than irritated by people who were sinners and who were weak and who lived a dirty lifestyle and they said, sorry, I cannot stand up to the level of virtue. I'm a sinner. I repent. I will, I shall try better next time. Rather than to people who had this mental philosophical arrogance to say, no, 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 no. I believe that it is so and so. So it goes uh, very deep to the sources that history shows that people are very seldom, uh, you know, killing each other because of material things. It does happen now and then, 
but when you study causes, you see that ideological causes are way, 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 way more frequent in people waging war. Either it's Catholics against Protestants or Shias against Sunnis or uh, Hindus against Muslims or whoever against whoever. You know, it's like ideological causes have a talent of uh, irking human beings, of uh, provoking human beings like no, you can say, what's the big deal that other people believe other things than you believe? But it's true that other beliefs can be, you know, very, very, they can be leading to other things. And I can give you so many examples in history where it all started with a belief and that belief was considered to be unacceptable or provocative. No, it's like, um, it happens in the 20th century a lot. Uh, there are so many examples. Uh, I don't want, I don't feel that it's necessary to go into the details of those. So coming back to the story which I wanted to say here, it is very important for you to understand that the human history is much more than what people believe woven against reasons which are ideological. Like even in the First World War, even in the Second World War, things of the 20th century, when what I learned in communist school as a child, I learned according to the Marxistic doctrine that like all the events, they are not caused by anything but by social tensions, economical tensions, a desire for land, for expansion, geopolitical ambitions, and stuff like this. After I had studied yoga for two, three years, when I started looking into the applications of metaphysics, like following the metaphysical logics into human history, life, politics, and other things, I discovered with surprise that I had learned in school, and it was not only I, because I grew up in a communist country, but people on the other side of the Berlin Wall were taught the same rubbish, that we are all taught a sort of watered-down materialistic view of history, in which everything is because of social and economical factors, when actually much, much more is due to ideological factors, and people support some ideologies which they have, and that's what matters most to them. People are ready to mobilize nations at war for an ideology. It's true that economical reasons can also be there. No, like, you can, if you ask people today, why did Western nations invade Afghanistan or Iraq? people are going to tell you that it's probably because of oil and uranium or something like that. Actually, if you'll ask metaphysical people, they are going to tell you that there is an ideological war which is being waged against uh, today mostly Islamic nations, ultra-Islamic nations, and it is for curbing some ideological things which from the standpoint of the dominant military forces in the world who are of the type of Protestant, neo-Protestant, Calvinistic and stuff like this. Don't think that uh, George W. Bush was uh, the only person who claimed to be second born or something. 
it's not at all about uh, the 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 public statement of faith of a person it goes much much deeper and that's why uh, these things are very 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 much of an ideological nature the ideological war starting with this protestant calvinistic things it joined hands with all the underground movements of Europe, like all the disgruntled people of Europe, such as the Celtic, the Celtic uh, mystic reminiscences, which were considered heretic by the church, the survivors of the Templar Knights, which had been burned at stake in the 14th century, but many of them were still surviving, and they were very disgruntled and very discontent with the powers that be, the some Rosicrucian reminiscences, some other practitioners of different occult forms. And this created a big, big cauldron in which a lot of things boiled together for a hundred, two hundred years. And then using these trends, then they slowly, slowly led, like first the fight of these anti-establishment forces went against aristocracy and against clergy, the traditional one. And this appeared in the American Revolution, which said, we don't have a king, fuck the king of England, we are a republic with a president. This went into the French Revolution, where Robespierre or somebody, one of the revolutionaries, was screaming, let us strangle the last of the priests with the bowels of the last of the aristocrats. Like there was a sort of a rage, while if you think a little bit traditionally, metaphysically, the aristocrats and the priests are the equivalent of the kshatriyas and of the brahmins from the Indian society, and of the samurai and Buddhist monks from the Japanese society. Like these are the two upper castes of the society, which are supposed to be the most educated, powerful, stable and uh, compassionate classes of the society, well-educated, who are supposed to be protectors of the society. Like, for example, in Thailand, if the nation wants to go drunk, then there is somebody up there who says, no, actually your king says that you shouldn't drink so much because it's not good for you. So we are not going to institute a total prohibition because we know that it failed in America in the 1920s. We are at least going to institute a partial prohibition that between 2 p.m. to 5 p.m. and after midnight you cannot buy booze, at least not officially. There will be people who will bypass this by criminal activities, but still that will reduce the front activities considerably because of that. Te theoretically forbidding like this action to give a law which says too much booze, hold on a little bit, drink less, and between these are, this is something which would have been the responsibility of the Brahmins and the Kshatriyas in a traditional society, saying the farmers and the commercials, you know, the lower castes are a bit like animals, they are Pashu. They are cattle, and they cannot control their primary instincts, so we have to give them a code of laws, we have to give them a code of morality and ethics, we have to make them behave, because they are a little bit like children, 
and the upper castes are the more evolved people who are supposed to be protector of the poor, protector of the many. That was the traditional, the law, if you read the laws of Manu and other traditional texts from different parts of the world, there existed a very luminous intention. And then together with this goings of history, in which religious authority is trashed and temporal authority is also squashed, and then there comes a sort of anarchy. The experiment of the French Revolution was very, very interesting. Uh, it was um, in this book, Talisman, I forgot, uh, Graham Hancock, a British journalist, makes a brilliant uh, analysis of the idols and things, the confusion, the generalized confusion, how the French started worshipping some bizarre goddesses who nobody knows who invented and brought forth, like they were Roman Catholic until 17, whatever, 93, and then suddenly they started worshipping some bizarre goddesses, out of which some of them became this Phrygian head goddess, which is in the town halls of France, of the, you know, like, I think Mireille Mathieu was used as a model, for this French uh, mother friends or something type of woman that was appearing. And actually, you can see that this is very much the symbol of Pallas Athena and some other Egyptian goddesses. And these were things manufactured by the secret societies that fomented the French Revolution. So it was not about the poor people on France having no food. That is a social excuse for throwing dust in the eyes of the ignorance. It was secret societies which were anti-monarchy and anti-religion who had some agenda. And then people are kept in the blindness saying, oh, people were hungry. And then Marie Antoinette bought this uh, a very ne expensive necklace and people got out in the street. If you want to live in ignorance, believe that theory. But as soon as you start digging deeper you are going to see that it's not much to do with the necklace of Marie Antoinette, that the French Revolution was provoked by a very determined group of people that were having occult agenda. The agenda of it seemed to give some satisfaction to the French crowds, to the French mob, but actually it was secret societies that had an ideological agenda, and they wanted to destroy something, to put something instead, to build. They were making experiments with the human history and with the human society. And ever since these centuries, where these cracks appeared, at least in the West, because in the East, history followed a slightly different rhythm. For example, Japan defended itself from any outer intrusion until the middle of the 19th century, at the fall of the shogunate at the Meiji Restoration, until then from 1600 to 1850, the shoguns of Japan had isolated Japan and they managed to keep it in 250 years of peace and stability, it's precisely because they noticed what was happening, what was coming from the West, and they realized, but they were not smart enough to prepare for what will happen in the 19th century, and therefore when the pragmatism of the naval artillery came on 
then even the Japanese shogunate crumbled into pieces. So, of course, they were unadapted to the future. But what I'm trying to say is that uh, in the Western spirituality, as well in society and politics, this is a call for your attention, follow very carefully the ideological motivations because most of the major things that happened, the 1821, the 1848, the 1860, I forgot how much, all these so-called bourgeois revolutions which marked transition from feudalism to the early capitalist society, and so on, all sorts of events which you have learned in history classes, and they are supposed to be landmarks of what happened in the Western history in the last three, four hundred years, are actually most of them manufactured events in which the crowds followed foolishly, and, uh, you know, like people would say that the Declaration of Independence of America is a sort of a mass movement. Bullshit. It's a statement signed by 35 people, out of which 33 are Freemasons. Doesn't that stink of something that it has to do with the Freemasonry, that the Freemasonry wanted to have a country of their own to start with, and that most probably is the U.S. of A. No, it's like everybody can see once you know some of these things, and you realize that you should not be content with... Uh, descriptions like many people when they say oh christianity did this and but wait a second there is christianity and there is christianity there is christianity which practiced inquisition crusades there is there are other types of christianity which practiced burning the witches and all sorts of stamping out of the joy of the daily life like you cannot play music you cannot write poetry you cannot dance you cannot do this this was practiced accurately in the, that type of Christianity and many others. You know, we have until today the Amish and all sorts of other Jehovah's Witnesses and other extreme manifestations of Christianity in which some things which are completely tolerable in other denominations to them are completely intolerable. Same thing, it happens with different denominations of Islam, of Judaism, of other religions in which exactly the same thing happened. You know, some some Jews don't have a problem with flipping a switch on Saturdays, and some Jews have to train a monkey to flip their electric switches on Saturdays. No, so it's like it can go to real funny places. So I'm saying all these things because you have to follow a little bit, um, also to understand better the world and the religion and to understand how far we have reached today, how far we are today. Some of the things which today we take for granted and people are grumbling about this or that, you know, like people keep on having a fuss, why doesn't the Catholic Church accept condoms or female priests or something, you know? But when you look at the history of spirituality, you will understand how far we have gone from many roots and from many things which are there, and uh, especially how many of these things started after the Renaissance. The centuries of the Renaissance brought some very big turn. I remember 
a very famous author for me who quoted from one of the yogis, one of the Western yogis having visions from Shambhala. And he was in his musings in meditation. He said, I can see in my visions. I'm going to read it in one of the evenings when we do Shambhala meditation as inspiration. And this guy was saying, you know, I can see in my visions this land of Shambhala. And I realize how much of the negative karma of the earth these people are burning every day and how much worse the earth would have had a fate because people indiscriminately and unwittingly do so many sins, do so many karmically negative things. Like try to think about the billions of animals taught every year just for eating them when simple experience shows you can live without eating them as well, you know. So the eating is still for fun. It's not for survival in most cases. In some cases it is. And therefore, you know, like, and he, this guy said, when I think how much negative karma humanity produces, you know, and Shamba, and he says, especially since the Renaissance. It's a common idea when you read René Guénon, Julius Evola, Ananda K. Kumaraswamy, and a few others, the big metaphysicians of the 20th century, that when they drew the line and when they looked at the history of humanity, they have all seen that the humanity has gone lower and lower in spiritual wisdom, in spiritual devotion, in purity, in, in pure spirituality. Again, people will say, but Swami, weren't the Roman Empire terrible? Yes, there were spiritual decadence here and there in waves, but generally these wavy lines, which means sometimes it's lower, sometimes it's higher, still this wavy line goes like this, like it still goes lower. You have moments of revival, like Jesus coming and giving faith to millions of people, and then still going even lower. So the general line still goes down when you look time-wise, although there are waves, wavings along it. So, um, sure... There have been many other dark moments in human history, and we don't even refer to the some of the American, North American, and South American pre-European history, like what were the Mayans and the Incas and the Aztecs really doing, what sort of luminous cultures they had or not, uh, what uh, were other, what was you know, aspects of the history of Asia, what was Asia doing in those centuries, what was happening in a place like India or like Thailand or things like that. And that's why, uh, or China, of course, Japan, uh, that's why uh, this is just uh, focusing more on the European, Western culture, therefore, perspective of it. I, uh, To me, the reading of this chapter triggered me, prompted me to do more research to do my homework and to read a little bit more. And I saw that indeed many things were fitting. And when I read the opinions of some of the great metaphysicians, I've seen uh, indeed that they pointed bitterly that the Western civilization, especially starting with the Renaissance, while the Renaissance was a hope, like, wow, we are going to have more light, more freedom, more this, more that, Eventually, it turned into things which were bitter because under the guise that now there was more religious freedom, the people who created the new religions 
those new religions were crap. They were ugly. They were way more demonic in a cryptical way, you know, because in the beginning, it's really difficult to say if Martin Luther is a pawn of the devil or not, because Martin Luther starts by arguing, well, I'm rebelling against an impure religion. So the motivation seems to be kind of good. But then when you see what is really involved and who Martin Luther is and what the fruits of the tree are, then you say, maybe, dear Martin, maybe you got tricked bitterly by the devil and actually you have been the agent of something very dark which you yourself didn't really realize how far you are just used and then thrown to the garbage bin. No, because the demons have no gratitude for those they use in their dealings. And therefore, um, it is, again, um, I read this chapter with the perspective of making, giving you food for the thoughts and prompting you to understand. This was one of the things which um, motivated me a lot when I saw that while I was taught in school that the history is because of money, economy, social trends, I discovered with great surprise and sometimes with revolt that history is very much about a small number of people that have ideological agendas and they push them ruthlessly. And uh, of course, it's all about ideology in the positive way. Like when Jesus created indirectly millions of converts and when both the Eastern Roman Empire and the Western Roman Empire became more than 50% Christian, like the population converted to Christianity, then it was inevitable that sooner or later even the emperors of the Roman Empire will be converted to Christianity and that Christianity will become state religion of the Eastern and Western Roman Empire and the history will go in there. So you can say that ideologically even Jesus conquered the Roman Empire, even, you know, Christianity conquered, but it was not conquered by conspirators. It was not, it was conquered by 50,000 people dying in the Colosseum, sacrificed to lions and crucified alive. It was a different kind of conquest through a sort of a grassroots revolution, while in the case of the French Revolution, it seems to be grassroots, but if you'll read the history of it, you are going to see that the French Revolution is nothing of the grassroots, neither is the independence of America, nor is the 1848 revolution, nor is uh, any other thing which is given like being a sort of a grassroots thing. Even I was watching recently the new movie about Lincoln, about Abe Lincoln. Even the thing of Lincoln, you think probably that the abolishing of slavery by America was the decent thing to do and normal, and it was something which was bound to come as history evolved. You would be surprised to know that this was one of the programmatic things of the secret societies to do. And you can say, well, so the secret societies sometimes do good things, sometimes, because I fully agree that this was supposed to be done. But then when you are going to see the way it was done and the reasons for which it was done, you are going to see that it was like, it's not a grassroots revolution that Abe Lincoln used as a luring argument 
the thing that, okay, among the points will be an abolishing of the slavery and the paragraph 13 of the U.S. Constitution or something of that respect. It was not. This was coming and all the people that voted for it, 90% of them were again members of the same secret society, which was supposed to be a very enlightened secret society wishing for progress of humanity. But the question is, should the history be decided <coughs> and manipulated by a handful of conspirators who have the talent to manipulate the crowds to say yay whenever they uh, push the big guns in and all that? You know, that because you are giving the lure that people make history and then you are going to find out a bit too simple that people are generally too stupid to make history and they are always the smart guys who are making a lot of things and people are just following in most, in most circumstances. I'm not saying that there are no cases of people's power. Even the Romans knew that when they said vox populi, vox dei, like when the crowds really speak, that's like the gods are thundering. You cannot stop the multitude because then it's like the divine gods express themselves through a sort of collective hypnosis at the level of the collective subconscious mind. And then some trends appear which are unstoppable. So um, I hope that... Uh, this chapter uh, was uh, inspiring you to open your eyes towards this aspect. Uh, it's not really pushing you. I'm not trying to push you into conspiracy theories with this one, although it will probably open a couple of them for some of you. It's more to inspire you to realize the power of ideology, that when Jesus comes and brings a new ideology, there is a huge power in that. And when Buddha comes and brings a new ideology, there is a huge power in that because the human soul feeds a lot on ideology. Jesus even says, you know, don't eat the bread of the Pharisees because human beings don't just eat bread and drink water. They have to feed themselves with the word of God. Like there is an ideological need in the human being for which sometimes for ideological or idealistic reasons, People can fast, people can thirst, people can die, people can do lots of sacrifices from their physical comforts just because of some ideological motivation, standing up for a cause, for an ideal of some sort. It's very relevant to understand this because most of you here, except those of you who will be here for a very short time and those of you who will more or less uh, decide to get off this path and those of you who are here just for a mere short-lived curiosity of some intellectual nature, most of you here are part of spirituality, part of the 21st century spirituality, because you are not only lip service spiritualists, you are part of the few people in this world who actually do spend two hours, five hours, n hours per day uh, doing spiritual practice, having visions, opening your third eye, hearing mantras, going into dark room retreats, doing experiments uh, of different kinds, and therefore some of you definitely are the ones who will obtain and already do and did obtain practical spiritual results. 
And because of this, many of you here are on the cutting edge of spirituality because you are and you will be in the years to come, you will be the active spiritualists of this world, the people who actually did and can transmit something to others. And uh, because of this, it is very, very important for a person who is involved in spirituality in this way to understand the true impact, the true power, the true import of ideology, belief, idealism, spirituality. I remember a great philosopher when I read when I was young, and he said, although people generally dismiss philosophy, like that crippled, funny scientist called Hawkins, recently gave an interview where he said, well, there's no more need for philosophy. Maybe in his disabled head, there's no more need for philosophy, but others do have. This great philosopher, he said, philosophy enjoys a privilege which most of the other human disciplines, even science, never enjoyed. Like, for philosophy, people died. Often. Wars have been fought between materialists and idealists, this and that. No. While, for example, between adepts of the uh, theory of relativity or quantum mechanics or uh, Newtonian mechanics or this, you don't fight wars. He said it very clearly, philosophy <laughs> has the power of moving people's souls. And if you move people's souls, it is a deeply irrational thing, and yet the masses and the individuals react to these things. You in spirituality are dealing exactly with the ideas, ideological things, spiritual things, and in a spiritual, in a practical way, and because of this, it is an object of meditation always for people who go in spirituality. What am I playing with? Which are the forces which are at stake? Like it is obvious that if any one of you in this room, let's say, becomes a revolutionary spiritual person like Buddha, well, history is going to change. Anybody in this room becomes a real, full-on Buddha, history is going to be totally different, isn't it? And there will be social convolutions, movements, spasms, rearrangements, and a lot of things, starting from just that one person that today may be here in this yoga hall. That's why, yes, ideology changes the world, produces ripples in the history of the world, and it's much more than uh, other fields of human activity. That's why uh, it is important to look in this direction and to first understand how ideology, and how a small, because people usually don't even pay attention. They say, well, yeah, Luther, Calvin, Henry VIII, they were all discontent people, and they produced different versions of Christianity, and well, I guess that was bound to happen. Like, people shrugged their shoulders, like that was nothing. But it was, it was far, far from nothing. It's exactly like a tree sprouts a new branch. And ten years later, that branch has a total, total importance in the architecture of the grown-up tree and what's happening there. So, therefore, uh, things of, you know, which are minimized, oh, yeah, sure, yeah, this is it, then this event happened. If you, if you zoom a little bit on them, 
you will see there movements of the human soul, movements of the collective mind on planet Earth, and trends which are very, very important and which can help you understand some of the things that happen today. Like, who is ruling today? You know, the crowds are kept happy by give, being given the impression, which is a bullshit impression, that nobody rules. People rule. Oh, it's democracy, perhaps except in Brunei and Bhutan and some real negligible places on the face of this earth. Uh, there is democracy, so that means on this planet we are 7 billion people and at least 6 billion of them rule. We rule the world. You are very, very, very naive if you believe things like you are very candid. You should read Candide by Voltaire because that should be your, your night shelf book if you believe in this kind of things. That the questions to be asked is, what ideology is ruling today? Who implemented that ideology? And what do they have to gain from it? Who, like not, there is no free lunch. Why are things done the way they are done? Who stands to benefit? And all that. So, uh, in this way, you will understand better why some people in spirituality are rebellious. In the modern times, while there were spiritualists who, within their own religion, they created some reformation. No, like Francis of Assisi, he was a Roman Catholic in the 12th century uh, Italy, and he was beaten and tortured, and he was about to be declared a heretic, and he created a small revolution while still not creating a rift in his religion. <coughs> and other another saint teresa of avila in the 16th century spain she was doing many things in which even the religious authorities persecuted her and still she was a pure breed spanish uh, roman catholic saint and a woman of great spiritual elevation and therefore she did create a little bit of a revolution although without creating a rift rumi was a staunch Muslim in the 12th century Islamic cultures of the East, and he did create something new in Islamism by creating, by actually solidifying the, the Sufi movements and, you know, defining the different branches of Sufis, many of them which exist until today, and yet without creating a real rift, although some Islamic cultures have forbidden the Sufis, and some partial rifts have been created even there. So what I'm trying to say is, uh, it is a very easy thing to see that as spiritual people came towards the 20th century, we started having people a la Gurdjieff and uh, some of the yoga gurus that came to the West and others, spiritualists, some of them very authentic, who are very rebellious. Like these people, they rather, you know, people get a bit of the yibbi-jibbies when they hear some Iranian Muslims or others saying that USA is the great Satan. No, but why would they say such a thing? You know, because you find many spiritual teachers of modern days which are not Muslim, definitely, 
and which are on the opinion that most of the governments of today are the great Satan. It's not only America, by far. Most of this politics and money-dominated type of modernity is actually anti-divine governance, and that's why I have encountered in my life many spiritualists who openly or secretly, depending on their temperament, they were adamantly against the rules of and many of the things of the society. And they cultivated the philosophy of Robin Hood. Like now we live under tyranny. And it is the moral duty of every spiritual person to be a rebel to rebel against this kind of governance which is preached, all this big brother conformism and political correctness, and it is the duty of uh, any spiritual person to stand against it, to, no, to, to rise against such things, you know, in whichever way you want, you know, like Osho Rajneesh was rising against it, first of all, by avoiding to pay taxes. He simply said, Buddhas are tax-exempt. No, like the society did nothing to make me into a Buddha. Why should I, as a Buddha, who received donations from people for their spiritual aspiration, share the donations which people gave to me with a government with which I totally disagree and which I consider to be the hand of Satan? No, like why would I? It is my moral and ethical probity which forbids me, you know, if I would pay taxes willingly, I would be like condoning the devil, you know, and I don't want to do that. I prefer to be publicly crucified for it, at least to show that I protest against that. So in this way, uh, in the moment when you start studying the ideological roots of things, you're going to find out that we live in very distorted ideological times, and then you will understand why many spiritualists are anti-establishment, have become so much anti-establishment, and the government, the governments have this tendency that everybody who is very religious, either it is the branch Dravidians with David Koresh or whoever, they should immediately proclaim them as dangerous loonies, extremists, fanatics, something, because somehow they do not integrate into the conformism, and the governments want things done in another way. It is not a coincidence that it was decided at the French Revolution time that state and religion should be separate. That is, was one of the very low blows given to the religious spirit, <coughs> so that today you got to the point where even people in the West, they were accusing the Russian commies for being so satanic, soulless uh, people. And today you can't say Merry Christmas in America because you have to say season's greetings or something like this. You know. So basically, we've got to a place where you, you see a movie like Gifted Hands of a medical doctor, a surgeon who was religious, and he was publicly affronted by other medical doctors who told him, how can you be a graduate of one of our American universities and a surgeon and still believe in God? It is well known that any man with a university degree cannot believe in God. Should not. No, you should be like Stephen Hawkins, you know. 
maybe not in a wheelchair though. But you should say, you know, there is no need for God. You know, we are so smart that we don't need any God because now we have physics and chemistry. <coughs> and thus, um, there are many, many trends which actually start from very unhealthy, sometimes ideological warfare, which is inflicted upon humanity, and which especially the young generations, if they don't make an effort to do some research, like use your own brain, then uh, many people take for granted, like, oh, that's the way it is. If uh, Athens is made of a thousand people, and if out of those a hundred people, 501 out of a hundred find out that Socrates is an asshole, although Socrates never killed anybody except perhaps when he was a defender, a soldier of Athens, he fought in wars for defending Athens from barbarian invasions, and he did his duty, he did his civic duty towards Athens. But unfortunately, the man had a very big mouth, and he was very, very sharp. So, Socrates is known because he mercilessly criticized and exposed people's hypocrisy, people's, you know, way of double values and all that. And guess what? They murdered him in the name of democracy. If out of a thousand people, 501 said, yes, Socrates is intolerable, she, he should die, then Socrates was politely invited to drink a cup of poison, and so he died martyrdom, just because most people wanted him to die. But actually, statistics show that those most people, probably all of them had an IQ less than 100, which means most probably all of them were idiots. The fact that 501 idiots can condemn Socrates to die poisoned is a real sick society. It's a real altered society which doesn't see anymore the real values and what is, how real value should respect it, how the humanity truly evolves, and which are the values that we produce. The fact that if somebody in the 20th century, if they try to create children, if they try to educate mothers how to make children with a higher IQ, and then such people are called Nazis and racists, it flabbergasts me. If that's Nazism, then I am a Nazi with all my heart, because I think all the mothers in this world should create very intelligent, very healthy, very superior children. And if there is any scientific foundation to doing that, not doing it is a total stupidity and a total cowardice. You know, when we speak about creating a better world and evolving on planet Earth. That's why I just wanted to, I started from William Bramley with the purpose of showing that there are many unseen forces which run at the level of the collective mind and spirituality and ideology is dominated by things. We don't have courses about this in Agama. We don't have the time and the space to do courses about, you know, what is the true history, you know, revealing some of these things, maybe we should for the formation of a complete human being. 
But uh, anyway, we are concerned here with the development of the human being through spiritual practice. And uh, that's what takes all our time and all our energy in what we do here. At the same time, it is impossible for any one of you, as you grow up spiritually, not to ask relevant questions. So when you want to do some extracurricular thing from what you learn in Agama, and when you want to do a bit of homework and research on your own, don't miss this point as well, because um, there is there a gold mine. I don't know how others are, but I uh, got very nourished by this, because there was a point where I started feeling like I was a bit of a weirdo, you know, a bit of a... Don Quixote living in a, a sort of a misfit living in a world which uh, I didn't seem to accept and didn't seem to accept what I was doing. And then slowly, slowly I discovered I was not alone and very eminent people had exactly the same ideas and it was actually a very intelligent and superior thing and that the world is ruled by some very inferior forces and that uh, makes you at least have peace in your heart because it's exactly like somebody wonders, why do I keep planting tulips and my tulips keep dying? Either I'm a very bad tulip gardener and I have no green fingers, or I'm doing something really wrong, or the world is very wrong. And then if somebody comes and tells you, you are so stupid, you never realize that it's winter. It's winter and you never plant tulips in winter and expect them to grow. Like, wake up, it's winter. Okay, if I'm a tulip farmer and you tell me it's winter, I will sigh and laugh with all my heart and you say, stupid me. No, I didn't know, I didn't realize. Sure, if you want to grow tulips in winter, you should do it in a glass house and otherwise wait for the spring because that's the season for tulips. It's the same with spirituality. If you do not understand the trends which move this world, you sometimes may feel very alienated and misfit and like I was born in the wrong century and I don't know what's wrong with me and so on, while actually you might be some of the more sane members of the society because in a society which has gone down the drain, sometimes sanity looks like abnormality and the norm is insanity and uh, disharmony. This being said, let us uh, traditionally remain in silence for just a minute for calming down the mind and allowing things, information to settle down, after which we'll stop for tonight and part finishing this satsang. And that will do. With this we have finished. Namaste to all of you. Thank you for joining tonight's satsang. This was a live recording of Swami Vivekananda Saraswati. For more information, visit us on agamayoga.com or go directly to agamayoga.com slash downloads.